I am Sergio Brodsky, and I'm a brand and foresight strategist. And I'm Jazz Giuliani, the editor of Marketing Mag. Welcome to Futurecast, the podcast where we talk with professional futurists, renowned academics, and high-profile business leaders from around the world. In this series, we think about the future so that we can meaningfully change the present. The time is now. Join us for better futures. Welcome to Futurecast. Today, we are speaking with Dr. Jared Cooney Horvath, who is a neuroscientist, educator, and author. Thank you for joining us, Jared. No, thank you guys for having me on. Look forward to this. We're so excited to speak with you. Obviously, the way the human mind works is really important to understand if we're going to understand how we shape our preferred futures. So, As an award-winning cognitive neuroscientist, you have devoted your career to understanding the brain and beyond your research, you've been a lecturer, you've been a speaker, and you've even written books on the topic, leading me to believe you're pretty passionate about education. (laughs) So (laughs) why are you so passionate about brain science and education? And what's your earliest memory of that interest forming? Oh, that is, that is a huge question. Um, Believe it or not, if you you go back in the past, my trajectory sounds totally wonky. So I didn't even really get into education and teaching till my mid twenties. Before that, all I wanted to do was I wanted to be the next Steven Spielberg and make movies and that was the hip thing to do. Oh, yeah. But man, it is hard to make movies and it sucks. There are so many. I always say if you if you're an artist, <laughs> film probably isn't for you because it's it's art by committee. There are so mm. many people you have to answer to and who chime in. And so I left that went into teaching just thinking, oh, I'll spend like a year just piddling around here. And nope, that ended up being my real passion was just working with students, working with teachers to learn. I'm like, wait, this is really where the juice is at. Seeing how the next generation of of human beings are being formed, developing what they're thinking. Um, And it was from there that I got then into neurosciences. I I had this weird notion that if I understood how the brain worked, then I would be a better teacher. So I'll just go back to school, learn all that stuff, thinking that'll take me a year or two. Um, And unfortunately, it's now been 15 years uh, stuck in academia, studying the brain, the mind, all of this stuff. But I'm still the only reason I do it is so I can still bring it back to individuals. So most of my work is still done with schools, with teachers, with students to say, if this is how we learn, then what does that mean for us, for our teaching, for schools? And you can see it's, it extends beyond that. Essentially everything we do hinges on learning. So the better you understand how human beings take in, embody, and then utilize information, the easier all of this stuff becomes, the better, better chance you have of actually influencing people. Are you passionate about teaching and educating children because developmentally, there's still so much opportunity, I guess, to to learn when you're young in terms of the brain. I mean, you'll know far more about this than me, but I just imagine that, you know, kids are in this place where they are still developing and they have so much room to grow and, and learn. It's, and it's, you're, you're right. It's totally easier and quicker um, to work with, with younger people than it is with adults. But to be fair, the learning process itself never changes. So whether you're eight or 80, you have the same capacity to learn. It's just the impact required. So I always, I always kind of say it like this. Imagine learning is, is you're going down a road. An eight-year-old has only been going down the road eight years. So if I want them to turn left, they've only got to backtrack eight years and then they can turn left off we go. An 80-year-old can do the same thing. We just now have to backtrack 80 years worth of learning to get them to that wonky left turn that they might have missed. So it's totally the exact same process. It's just a lot longer the older you get. And I think you're right. Is For whatever reason, I have no real – well, no, I say that, but I can't be true. 
Like I wanted to say, I have no real compunction to guide the next generation into being a certain way, shape or form. Like I'm much more interested in them kind of flourishing in what they want to pursue. But with that said, I think, I, I guess that is kind of a lie because look, you don't want to be a teacher and work with students if you don't in some way want to shape mold them. So I think what I want to, what I enjoy most about working with them is that concept of getting them to see beyond <laughs> what we would call kind of truth-based science and instruction. This idea that somebody has the answers already. My job is to learn those answers and then I'm good to go. Yes, people have answers and your job is most certainly to learn those answers, but your bigger job is then to break those answers. The one thing that most people forget, especially about science and education, is everything changes. Every fact has a half-life. So your job isn't just to get to my level and say, cool, well, now I'm just going to live at your level. Your job is to get to my level and then jump above me and tell me every place I'm wrong, call BS on everything I've ever done and break my story down. So giving them that that recognition that, hey, math isn't done. Science isn't done. The All these things that we teach you, here's how you write a five paragraph essay. That's all moldable and breakable and changeable. And it's their job to change it. So I love giving them that empowerment to say, yep, learning, you need to know where we've been, but your job is to see where are we going to go next. Hello, Dr. Horvath. How are you? Good day, Sir Guzio. How are you? <laughs> I'm very well, thank you. Uh, Jared, we met in a, in a slightly different context, not so much about education, but still concerning learning, but not the learning of, uh, of a degree or learning a subject, but learning the messages that advertisers put in market. And just as you said, understanding the brains can become a very powerful thing to shape the market we build through the brands that uh, we developed through, through the messages that we send to market as well. And uh, with this incredible knowledge that you have, uh, we were able to do some, do some, uh, some work together uh, a couple of years ago when uh, you actually made some waves in the ad industry talking about attention and the importance of surprising your audiences. You also said that our brains are naturally wired two, three seconds into the future and to bring people into the present, it's all about breaking their predictions. So what do you mean by all that? And how does that actually take effect in our day-to-day -day lives? Yeah, so you can assume our brain kind of sits in two different stages, right? You've got stage one is what we're going to call active writing change mode. And stage two is what we're going to call passive simple prediction mode. So whenever we learn something new, the brain has to write that information into our brain. And of course, I'm just using a metaphor. It's not an actual computer up there, but it's a good way of understanding this. Writing anything new into the brain takes time and energy, a lot of energy, energy your brain and body typically don't have. So just to put a number to it, we assume that in order to write anything new into your brain, your brain taps into an energy source that most people have between two and four hours of a day. So the most new learning, new thinking, new changing you can do in any day is between two and four hours. We'll make it simple. We'll just say three hours as a nice average. So because the brain changing the brain requires all this energy, there's no way you can be writing all day, every day. So what happens is the brain, in order to save energy, has learned to build predictions. What it does is, is when you were young, it kind of was in a different mode. It learned all this stuff about the world. And now it uses your experiences, your memories, your learning to simply predict what's about to happen in the world. So I'm not lying to you when I say no one listening to this right now is actually listening to my words. You all are about one to two seconds in front of me 
simply predicting the words that are about to pop out of my mouth. And so long as the words you've predicted are even remotely close to what I actually say, you live in the prediction, not reality. We live in our old stories, not in the present reality. So if we're 90% of our time living in a prediction of how we think the world should be, then the easiest way to garner attention is to kick somebody into their active coder mode, get their brain out of that passive prediction mode into that secondary energy source, into that we got to write, we got to change mode. How do we do that? Dozens of ways to do that. I mean, people spend their lives doing this, prayer, meditation, exercise, reading a new book, all, there's tons of ways to do it. Easiest way to do it though is to just break somebody's prediction. If your prediction for what's about to happen is vastly different than what actually happens, there's a big enough gulf between what you think and what's real, then you don't have a choice biologically, your brain will kick into coder mode and everything will align in that moment. Your breathing slows down, heart rate slows down, pupils dilate, attention becomes focused. You will never learn better, faster, or easier than right after you screw up, right after a prediction fails, because biologically the machine, in order to save your life, says we better update right now. So that's kind of a big key to a lot of marketing when we think about attention grabbing and that kind of concept. So crash, boom, bang, I disrupt your prediction, I get your attention. But then comes, you know, the second, the second uh, holy grail of uh, advertising, which then is memory. So how do I remember what I just paid attention to? Because I can be there, I can be in the moment, yeah. but uh, uh, five minutes later, five days later, five weeks later, I would have forgotten everything, you know, or, you know, a, a big chunk of that information. So how do I retain that? So that's one, I think you're spot on. Most people focus on that attention grabbing aspect. And to be fair, I just want to go the <laughs> most people make the mistake of thinking that if I just shout loud enough, you're going to pay attention to me. And no, you realize, no, it's, it's about breaking what people expect. If people expect you to shout and you shout, congratulations, they're living in prediction. You ain't got nothing. But if people expect you to shout and you stay silent, that's when people go, wait, what the heck just happened? A good just illustration of this is and with Netflix, this might be a little different now, but remember when you used to watch TV back in the olden days and we had actual networks that you'd watch and every once in a while, the TV would just go black and it takes about two or three seconds of the TV going black until you feel it. Everything goes bing. What the heck is going on? And what do you do? You're focused hundred percent on that TV. Is it the station? Did my TV just blow out? What? Then you pick up the controller and you start surfing. Is it all stations or just this one? When noise is expected, silence wins. When silence is expected, then noise is going to break the prediction that wins. So it's not just about screaming. It's about finding what people expect and then building the other, going the other direction, saying, no, you know what? We're going to tweak it this way. Once you have attention, though, as you just said, cool, that's not enough. <laughs> Anyone can get an attention by a prediction break. Now you have to form a deep, durable, lasting memory. So how do we do that? Now, again, there's, I mean, we could talk about this all day. But the biggest key at this level here is a process called recall. So human memory is constructive. We like to think that if you want a deep memory, it's all about just putting it into your brain time and time again. See something a million times, you're going to be able to have a deep memory for it. Well, if that was the case, then what I want you to do, anyone listening, close your eyes and in your mind's eye, try and draw the Apple Macintosh logo. And you'll notice what you draw, you'll think is going to be good. But when you go compare that to the actual logo, about 70% of you will have been way off. So it doesn't matter. Here's a logo we've seen 
thousands of times in the last month alone, yet none of us really have deep memory for it. Why? Because human memory is constructive. The secret to deep, lasting memories isn't about putting it in. It's about taking it out. Every time you access a memory, that memory gets deeper. Access it again, and that memory gets deeper. Everything about memory hinges on recall, pulling that information out. So now you recognize that, cool, if I've got your attention, I now need to be considering how either in the moment or over the next couple days or at some point, am I going to weasel my way in to get you to think about this stuff? And this is why jingles works a dang well. A jingle, you hear it once, what do you do? You sing it for the next 10 minutes. Every time you sing it, that memory gets a little bit deeper. Or uh, people who have like these special promotions that say, I, the, the biggest one that ever happened to me was, Somebody said, hey, if you send us a picture of your dog, you'll get 15% off of blinds. Well, screw you. I don't need blinds, but now every time I look at a picture of my dog, don't you pop into my head and now your memory gets a little bit deeper. It's been five years since I've heard that ad. And every time I look at my dog, I still think, oh, dang, I can get 15% off of blinds. Sweet. So this is, it's, it's, the input is important. The attention is important. But then you got to say, what are you doing with this afterwards to get people to pull this information up? What is the... The, anything to do to get them to recall it rather than just keep putting it in. Content Brain specializes in content creation across a diverse range of topics for many industry sectors. If you need help with content development for your blogs, thought leadership, white papers, video, podcasts, or special projects, talk to the team at Content Brains. You'll find links in our episode notes. Right. You, you've hit a very interesting point here. And just to close off, you know, the whole memory and attention uh, uh, duality here, uh, emotions, right? You're saying that to remember things is all about doing something with the information that you received. But the main focus in the advertising industry is to put something inside people's minds with uh, some sentiment, with some feeling, with some emotions. And I remember quite vividly you giving the example of the, the, the periodical table of the elements. And back in, in high school, how, how much you hated studying that and even having this peak emotion related to a set of uh, data, you know, information, uh, you're never able to remember that. So what is the actual role that emotions play in memory? So it's, it's exactly as you said, it's not what people think it is. Most people think an emotion leads to a bigger memory. And just as you were saying, no, man, I had a ton of emotions in college, stress, anxiety, relief, uh, jubilation when I got an A, yet I still couldn't tell you anything. I learned at university. So the emotion turns out wasn't enough. What we think is happening with emotion is twofold. Is one, everything you do comes with an emotion. Every memory you make is stamped with an emotional kind of signature, we'll say. Now, what that that emotional signature does is, so we lay our memories down when we're asleep at night. So we call it consolidation. So you, you live your day, congratulations, you go to bed. As you're dreaming, that's when your brain is locking memories down. Now, problem. We think this process of memory consolidation takes about real time. So if you are awake 18 hours, asleep six hours, you've only got six hours to consolidate 18 hours worth of junk. You cannot do it. So what does the brain do? It necessarily is going to dump about 70% of everything you learn every day. It's just going to chop 12 of those hours out and say, I don't have time for this. Sorry. Out it goes. So this is why we say your memories is junk. Uh, (laughs) Every day you're going to forget about 70% of everything you learn. Just a natural process. 
So how does the brain decide what it's going to try and lay down? First, it takes the most recent things. Then it takes the most, what we call prior things. So the first things that happen in the day, and then it starts looking for those emotional signatures. Anything with a high emotional signature has a better chance of getting locked down that night when you consolidate, simply because that's the marker the brain is using to say, all right, that must be more important than the rest. But even at that point, you still don't make really deep memories for it. The deep memories come from the recall later. So think about it. You have two events today. Event one, you eat a ham sandwich. Event two, you get in a car wreck and just barely survive. These both events, they're, they're, if the sandwich was good, man, they have equal opportunity to get locked down in your brain that night. But which of these events are you more likely to talk about the next day? The sandwich or the car wreck? Of course the car wreck. Why? Because the emotion brings that to the forefront. Now you're going to talk about it. It's the act of talking about it or thinking about it the next day where you get the deeper memory. So it's not the emotion itself. Emotion is cool, but emotion is strong only in so much as it gets people to think about and talk about that stuff later. So you can have the most unemotional thing in the world, but if I can get people to recall it, congratulations, I win, i.e., show me a picture of your dog, you're gonna get 15% off of blinds. And you could have the most emotional thing in the world. I'm thinking about all those Hollywood movies I've seen, like, um, oh, The Mystique and all these ones that are just so emotional from top to tail, the biggest emotions in the world. And I couldn't tell you anything about today because after I finished watching it, I said, wow, that was, that was exhausting. Never spoke about it again, never brought it up. So the films are gone. So emotion only plays in so much as it drives recall, which brings us back to that initial idea. Mm, actually, it, it makes me think of in high school. So when I was study, uh, I found that the best way that I had of learning things for VCE was to talk to my mum about what I was learning at night. And so I could read all I wanted, but it wasn't until I had a conversation about them yeah. that those things would actually stick with me. So I did not know that I was tapping into that technique. There you, and, and a good, there a good go. rule of thumb is, because I, I think you're, you're spot on here, is talking about it, teaching it to somebody else, narratizing it, finding a way to summarize yeah. it for someone else, always a recall, all deep memory. But you don't, a good rule of thumb is you don't have to do it out loud. So the human brain doesn't differentiate between what we think and what we do. So, so far as the brain is concerned, imagination is just as real as reality and it changes accordingly. This is why um, visualization works with athletes. If you imagine yourself running a perfect race, your brain changes and you demonstrably become better at running that race. Congratulations. So with recall, it's the same concept. A lot of people, if you can do it with somebody else, awesome, because that gives you feedback, that gives you interaction. Now we're getting even deeper. But even if you, if you have no one else, if you can just think about it, if you hum a song to yourself, if you try and describe something to yourself, that's enough as a, a that counts as a count of a form of recall. And that's enough for the brain to start really laying down that memory. And so switching gears here a little bit in your TED, your TEDx talk, which by the way, was fantastic. Oh, thank you. You explain how our schemas or our stories or our narratives, as we call it in the article that we, um, that you and Sergio co-wrote for Futurecast, drive our perceptions of the world. So I'm, I'm curious about how much do those perceptions then influence our actions? Yeah. So you're, I'm loving this confluence here. So we've, we've just learned that the brain runs largely in prediction. What does it base its predictions on? It bases it off of your old memories, your old experiences, your old learning. In other words, your stories for the world. The stories you use to 
explain how the world is organized, how the pieces of it fit together, how you fit with all of the pieces of the world. Those stories are what drive your prediction, are what literally dictate what you will perceive. And when I mean perceive, I don't mean interpret. I mean perceive. What you see, smell, hear, taste, and feel is predicated on the narrative, the stories you have active in your mind at that moment. If you have a story that doesn't let something into your brain, it doesn't get in and then you just down the track go, eh, I don't think I like that. I'm going to interpret it differently. Nope. If you have a story that doesn't let something in, it doesn't get in, period. Now, this stuff gets really deep. Like I, There are examples um, between cultures. I don't have time to go into them, but of there's entire we don't think the color blue was actually perceived by human beings until relatively recently because all the early uh, civilizations, ancient civilizations, they never had the concept for the color blue except for the Egyptians. And because of that, we don't think they didn't talk about blue. We think they never perceived blue until they knew that was a story, a concept that existed. So when we ask, do our stories drive our actions? If our actions are predicated upon the world we are living in, the world we are perceiving, what it is we're seeing, smelling, tasting, then by definition, <laughs> our stories by and large drive our actions. They don't influence our actions. They determine what world our actions exist in. So now you start to recognize, yeah, it, it was for a while we thought it was just kind of cute. Like, yeah, stories are important, ha, 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 but really it doesn't really matter. And the more we do our research, we start to realize the way the brain is organized is, and just to simplify this, and I, I hate to harp on this point, but we call it top-down processing, is the brain doesn't really take in the world. It does. It gets signals in. But at any one time, the brain is pushing back. And we call this top-down, where it's saying, hey, you're looking at a dog. Well, dog should look like this. And it pushes back, and all the cells in the back of your eye can start to shift their positions so you see it the way you think it should be. That power of top-down processing guides everything. So every decision you make, every choice, every action, every behavior you undertake is going to somehow be driven by whatever story you have active, which then leads to the important point, the hell stories are we using? Because if you're using a wonky story, you're going to be doing some wonky stuff. Not going to necessarily be wrong. It's just going to be disaligned with other people's stories. And now where do we go from here? Hmm. That's, that's really funny because it's what I keep hearing, you know, from uh, therapists, psychologists saying that if you want to change your behavior, you need, you need to change the way you think. And to change the way you think, you need to change the narrative that you've been telling yourself. Uh, is it really the case? And if that is the case, why is it so bloody hard? Uh, <laughs> that is <laughs> so, the entire entirety of psychology is based on this very notion. Change your narrative. Change the way you think. CBT, one of the only scientifically validated forms of therapy, whatever that means, take that with a grain of salt, um, is, and I don't mean that CBT is bad. I just mean there are other forms of therapy that are wonderfully uh, powerful, but they haven't gone under random control trials, so we don't recognize those. But So there's a lot more to tap into, but CBT, the entire purpose of this is do a behavior or think of a behavior, bring that up into your mind, change the way you think of it, re-encode it. Bring up something else, change the way you think about it, re-encode it. Change the narrative, change the world you're living in. You don't just change the way you interpret the world, you change the world you're living in, which in turn then changes everything past that. So it, it's, it's, it's not cute when we say all, all of learning, all of therapy, all of everything, all of change is narrative change. Now, why is it so hard to do? <laughs> Two, well, no, I'd say three reasons. First, 
In order to change a narrative, you necessarily have to get your brain out of that passive prediction mode into that active writing coding mode. Unfortunately, that feels real bad. When people are in that active mode, like if we were live, I could play a game. I don't know how to do it auditorily. I actually, I can. What I might try and do is I might try and send you guys some audio files so you can really quickly insert a game here so that the listeners can feel what it feels like when they move out of prediction into coding mode. And when you feel it, the vast majority of people describe it as uncomfortable, unsettling, uncertain. They feel pressure. They feel frustration. None of these words are largely good. Most people do not like the feeling of the coder, which means anytime the brain kicks into a mode that says we've got to change our story, most people will immediately shut it back down. They'll say, oh, nope, don't like that. Off I go back to normal. So on one hand, we have this, it doesn't feel good. It's an it's a, it's a uncomfortable process to change your narrative. Two, I think a lot of people just don't care to change their narratives. I think about my mom. I sent her a book about a decade ago. And I said, here, this is something interesting you might want to read. She sent it back in the mail with a note that said, I'm 60 years old. I, I already know enough about the world. I need to do anything else. So she's just done. She's done changing her stories. Congratulations. She's had enough. Third is it tends to, and especially as the older you get, you have to go back to what we were talking about with learning. It takes a bit of time. Now, every once in a while, you can change a story in a split second. We call this hypercorrection, where reality and your story are so vastly different that in a moment, you can completely flip your narrative. Those points are very rare because very rarely are our predictions super wrong. Like very rarely do I have a prediction about the world that's going to kill me if I don't update it. So hypercorrection is slightly rare. Which means the rest of narrative time is, isn't going to happen quickly. It's going to happen slowly and repeatedly. And your old story is always going to come back online. So you have a narrative for the world. You've had it for 50 years. We start to get a new narrative going with you. As soon as you stop working with the new narrative, your brain goes back to normal, womp, and you're back in your old narrative. So it's a lengthy process that a lot of people just don't devote a whole hell of a lot of time to. So it's it's... A lot of people don't want to do it. It feels horrible and it takes a lot of time. So what do we do? We just pretend, eh, I am what I am. I was born this way. My genes made me this way. And I'm just going to see what the hell life throws my way rather than the most more honest position of no life is unfolding every day. What am I going to choose to do today? We are not waiting to see what's happening in our life. We are building it moment by moment, but most of us don't want to assume that responsibility. So we just kind of go back to the old theories of, eh, we'll just see what the hell I was meant to do. Yeah, and that and the challenge we have we have is time, as you as you mentioned, because do we have all the time in the world to change our minds and then change our behaviors? Perhaps yes, perhaps no. And if we if we were to take all of these theories to you know the next level, and rather than focusing on the individual, let's focus on like a wholesale approach to all that, and particularly you know uh, uh, based on your, your one of your books, uh, stop talking, start influencing. How could advertisers or governments create some uh, narratives or devices or programs or initiatives that could then start influencing all of us, uh, nations, regions, corporations, organizations towards better futures, which could be along the lines of, you know, greenifying things uh, uh, towards equality or peace or anything else that is considered universally positive. I love this. And, I, and I'm going to throw it back to you at some point during this, Sergio, to talk about urban brand utility, because I think that's a wonderful example of this. But Ooh. before we tuck into this, there's something worth pointing out, and it's going to help make sense of everything else. And it's this, it's that you are not your brain. 
Now, <laughs> that's a trippy concept. Who am I? Who am I, doctor? Tell me. You, well, you, sir, are just a hero amongst men. But other people, who are they? So we talk about the mind. It's reductionist scientists said, okay, well, you're nothing but the workings of your brain. And that's cool. That's made a bunch of people millions of dollars saying that. But that's nowhere near true. I, I don't think there's a single scientist outside of the 10 who the Richard Dawkins of the world who thrive on this that actually ever believe that. This is why we've, we've always separated the mind and the brain. This is why to this day, you can get degrees in mind and brain science. We still keep the two completely separate. One is considered neuro, one's considered psych, cool. So you are not your brain any more than your your heart, any more than your your lungs, your hip, your toe. You're in, you're, excuse me, you're of all of these things, but you're not in any of these things. We refer to you, to the mind, as being what's called an emergent property. Simply put, and this can get real deep real fast, so I'm going to try and keep it surface level. Emergent properties say as you move up what are called levels of organization. So as you move up complexity, so we have a cell, we put a bunch of cells together, we get a tissue, put a bunch of tissues together, you get an organ, into an organism, into a group of people, yay. As we kind of move up this ladder of organization, new properties emerge at each level that never existed before that moment and cannot be reduced. Once you go backwards from an organ to a tissue, you now lose a lot of the things that make an organ an organ. They didn't exist before the moment it, it emerged, and we can only discuss it once it pops out of the interaction of all the parts. So we think you, your mind, who you are, you're not in your brain, you're not in your lungs, you're not in your stomach. You emerge through the interaction of all of these parts. And if you take any of these parts away, you don't get like a little fraction, like 10% of me is in my brain. No, it's gone. You're, you're done. There's nothing left to talk about. But what makes human mind so powerful so you are not in your body, you're of your body. We think the human mind also has, so that's a kind of build up emergence. We think there's also a feedback emergence where things that occur at later levels of organization can actually feed back and change things beneath it. So simple example, my cells don't know that I exist. My stomach has no clue that Jared is a thing at all, but I certainly know my stomach exists. And even though I can't dictate what my stomach does, I can certainly influence it. How? By eating certain things. Maybe by doing some push-ups or some sit-ups, by uh, stabbing myself in the stomach. There's a million ways I can influence my stomach to change how it functions without it even knowing I'm a thing. Turns out the mind is the same way. If your mind emerges from the interaction between all of your bodily systems, then when you get a bunch of people together, something has to emerge above that. So when we say that society, that there's a social level of emergence, we don't just, that's not a metaphor. We truly believe there's arguments that a society, a group of people, there is something above that, that just like our stomach doesn't know Jared exists, we'll never know it exists. But my God, it certainly knows we exist. And just like I can influence my stomach, it can influence us. So now you start to see your mind, your narratives aren't just from you and your organs and your interaction, they're also constantly being fed back by the society you're in, by the larger emergent property above us, feeding back stories into us and saying, hey, this is what has to happen now. How do you change a social narrative then? The only way we know to do that are, is on major scale stuff, what you're talking about. Things like, can you get 
organizations or things with enough clout or pull to do something slightly different, which will change the emergent property above us, which can then feed back and change the individual without them even knowing anything has just occurred. So if we can change the social interaction at a certain level to a certain threshold, then that will change the emergent story, will change all of us. How do we then get big corporations or people or individuals to change narratives? Dozens of ways. One of them, you start at the grassroots level. That's what all the Black Lives Matter movement and all this stuff is, is grassroots. Get enough individuals to think differently. Collectively, everyone will shift their position. But are there other ways? And this is where the business, the company stuff comes in. So, Sergio, you have UBU, Urban Brand Utility. Have you talked about that on this podcast at all? Yes, that's happening uh, in a few in a few episodes from today. <laughs> so, would you be willing to just give like a quick little overview? Sure. Because I think it's a wonderful yeah. example of how this could all come to fruition. Yeah, I mean, it's basically a reflection of the things you've been saying because it's all about using media to deliver actions that we are in need of, not only to to publicize a message. And uh, by show, by demonstrating those actions, you're not you're no longer proselytizing. You're not, you're not telling people what to do. You're there doing that. And uh, according to mediatization, which is a theory that was developed by this uh, Swedish scholar called Kent Esp, he says that the way that society perceives it, itself and makes its decisions and has its political discourse is all based on how the media. Uh, communicates its messages to everyone, both from a top top-down perspective, but also bottom-up, which is exactly what you just said. And Urban Brain Utility, you know, then again, will be there to deliver those actions and could be, you know, this this disruption that might be required to take us from uh, fantasizing stories of positivity to then effectively leaving those. And, I, and so extend that now back, because I think that's a perfect example, is a lot of people will hear that and say, well, we're still talking about a top-down mechanism, right? It's still one person controlling a message that goes out that changes people. And in a way, yes. In a way, no. What we historically see is when one person controls a message in a top-down fashion, you get people to comply, but that doesn't actually change anyone's narratives. People either agree, they disagree, and they're willing to go along with it because otherwise I'm going to be sent to a gulag. But inside, no, they're still thinking differently. The narrative hasn't changed. So when you use media in a top-down fashion, you can, yeah, coerce people in a way, but that isn't the same thing as acting in a certain way, getting a threshold of human beings to believe and act in a certain direction, in which case now everything changes behind it. So that's why I think UBU comes on as it says, don't talk, don't give me the stories of all these great things. That's a top-down mechanism. Start enacting these things so it spreads and then the new emergent social property feeds back and lo and behold, we don't even notice that we're living in a different world, but when we compare it to everything else, we go, things really have changed, haven't they? Yep. No one was driving it. It was a, a top-down mechanism from the next level. Wow. That's incredible. Does it, I, it so can to, get trippy. To, like, I don't, I don't mean to, to trip people. That was <laughs> profound, doctor. That was profound. It's, it starts it to, you can see, I, it's, this has been, this concept of emergence has been just a huge thorn in the side of most sciences mm. because science has historically been reductionist. So long as we can go backwards, we can get to the building blocks of everything and build everything back up. Emergence comes along around 20 years ago and says, nope, once you go backwards, you lose the thing you were talking about. You don't explain it, you explain it away. And so now you've got, in pretty much all sciences, you've got a civil war where half of the people are still reductionists, half are now emergentists saying, no, we've got to work upwards. And so if it's, if it's causing this much, much fuss with us, I can imagine how that's just kind of 
sitting with everyone else in the world. But it is, it's, it's a big theory. And once you start really pondering the implications of it, it kind of changes how we think about who we are and how all of this fits together. Futurecast is the Marketing Mag podcast series brought to you by Content Brains and presented by Marketing Mag. Futurecast is produced by Joanne Davies, head of Content Brains and publisher of Marketing Mag. And Jazz Giuliani, editor of Content Brains and Marketing Mag. Our executive producer is Sergio Brodsky with original music and audio production by Sam Boone. If you want further details on our podcast or our guests, please visit the episode notes in this podcast. Remember to subscribe to Futurecast so you never miss an episode.